0: Hi, I'm Jennifer Ackerman Haywood, and you're listening to the Craft Sanity Podcast. This is a weekly interview show that is all about art, craft, and creativity. I produce it in the hope that it will help all of us live long and crafty lives. So let's get to it, folks. It's time to Craft Sanity. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode seventy-one of the Craft Sanity Podcast. My guest this week is Kathy Goldner. She is the creative woman who dreamt up the knitting out loud business. And what that is is she's taken a number of knitting books and made them into audio books. For example, books like Stitch and Bitch by Debbie Stoller and American Knits by Melanie Falick. She's taken these books and hired people to read them aloud and. and the case of Stitch and Bitch, Debbie Stoller herself read the book. So today we're going to talk about Kathy's inspiration for this business. You don't hear a lot about knitting books or craft books at all as audiobooks. And she's also going to let me play clips from five of her titles that came out in 2007. But before we go any further, I do want to direct you to craftsanity.com and encourage you to. Enter the contest after the show to win a copy of the History of Hand Knitting, the audiobook that we're gonna talk about. So settle in with a project, and that's here. What gave Kathy this great idea to create knitting out loud? I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today because I think what you're doing is really intriguing. Because we've all heard of audiobooks, but until I came across you and what you were doing, I had never heard of Anyone specializing in knitting in particular for audio books, so I'm really interested in hearing your stories. why don't we start out by just having you tell me a little bit about why you started knitting out loud
1: well i was I had not knit for a long time, and last winter I started knitting again and a friend of mine had given me some fabulous wool and I knitted up and just into a scarf and my daughter immediately took it and said, oh, I want this, and I thought, wow, you know, I could knit something somebody really likes, and <laughs> so I I started knitting madly, you know, all these Christmas gifts, and, and then I would rush off to the library and just take out armloads of books, and they're just, oh, wonderful, wonderful knitting books, but as I read them, I just loved the stories in them, the knitting stories, and, and then there, there are whole books of essays and interviews mm-hmm. and histories, and And I thought, well, I really want to be listening to these books while I knit. So I thought, well, they should be on audio. These books should be on audio. But, you know, there's such a a strange little niche um, that the big companies, I think they just aren't even on their radar for audio. So it just so happened that I had heard about a woman who had an audio book company in a, a couple towns away from me. And I thought, well, I'm going to call her up and see if I can start an audio book company. I can't believe I did this, actually. I thought, well, she'll tell, she can tell me. how. Maybe she'll talk to me about how,
2: how to, to do, do, it. do it. Yeah. yeah.
1: And uh, it's Heather Frederick, who for many years owned Audio Bookshelf. She sold the company about a year and a half ago. Actually, she thought I was had lost my mind when she got this phone call. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I want to put knitting books on audio, and of course, she like so many people I talk to who don't know about the things that are out there, just thought it was you know knit one purl two and right, and wasn't right, a
0: pattern. right, which would be not the most desirable audio book, you know, if it was just a pattern, you know, but you're well, not... I
1: have had requests for that.
0: You really have, yeah. Oh yeah,
1: yeah. Um, there are a lot of blind knitters.
0: Well, you know, I didn't really give any thought to that, but that makes total sense. Because if you can't read it and you don't want to be reading Braille while you, you know, because you have to put your needles down every time to read something. Yeah.
1: And so, anyway, when I showed her the books that I had in mind, she immediately got it, of course. You know, she started reading them. They were fabulous. She just loved them. And she said, yes, she would help me, she would uh, act as my consultant, she would produce the first three, which she did and I never, never could have done such a thing without Heather Frederick. So I'm I'm very grateful to her for all of her help.
0: So tell me about the first book.
1: Well, we started out with American Knit and Knitting Memory, Stitch and Bitch. And getting the audio rights for Stitch and Bitch was obviously a, a very big thing because it brought a lot more attention to my little company mm-hmm. than it might have otherwise have had because it's such a best-selling book and I went down to the book expo last May in New York and met Debbie Stoller and I had been thinking this is right after we got the contract oh I'd really love for her to read this book and she sat down next to me and she said oh she said can I read the book <laughs> so I was thrilled and, so you didn't even have to ask no I didn't even have to ask that's lovely and, uh, so she read the book and it was It's just a wonderful, she's, you know, so much fun, so
0: much fun. American Knits by Melanie Fallick, that was read by, you had somebody else read that book. Right. It was Knitting Memories second and then Stitch and Bitch, or were these all kind of going on at the same time, these three? They were
1: all kind of going on at the same time.
0: So they all came out at the same time then?
1: They were my first three, and then I got the contract for History of Hand Knitting and the Art of Fair Isle Knitting.
0: Okay. And how have these books been received?
1: Very well. It's really been thrilling. The company is going very well, and people's reactions, has, it, it's just been very satisfying and, and a wonderful thing to have done. You know, people are thrilled that these books are out on audio. The knitting world has, has been lovely about reviewing and, and talking about them, and it's been so nice for me to be working with people. You know, I talked with Melanie on the phone many times while we were recording to get pronunciations in correctly and uh, that sort of thing straightened away. I'm also working with Layla Narji on another book that she she edited Knitting Memories and and then she had, she wrote a book called Knitting Lessons, which I just loved and and I have the contract for that too. So we're we're working on producing that audiobook now.
0: That's great. Well, what did you do before you got into the business of putting knitting books on audio?
1: Well, For nine years, I ran a literature program for children. It was a program I devised, uh, got funding for, wrote grants for, worked with the schools on, to bring Western literature into the classroom for third, fourth, and fifth graders. And so what I would do is go into a classroom and tell the story, like a storyteller, stand up in front of the class, tell the odyssey or... Gilgamesh, Beowulf, Hamlet, Great Expectations. I had a couple of different curricula Mm -hmm. and I would bring the children also objects from each historical period as well as models of famous buildings. It was kind of a whole western culture enrichment class that I did. Awesome. It was really, really rewarding.
0: Yeah, well it sounds really fun.
1: Yeah, it was great
0: fun. The fact that you got back into knitting after being away from it for a while is what really led you to start thinking about putting knitting books on audio. Do you remember when you, this idea crept into your mind I and mean, it was like, like something right away, you're like, yeah, I could totally do this? Or was it kind of, there was like a kind of a fumbling around period where you're like, how could I possibly do this?
1: Well, there definitely was a fumbling around when I had the idea you know, this would be a really good thing. And I thought, oh, maybe I can do this on my computer. You know, that that was really stupid. I...
0: You were thinking you could read them or something? Oh, or yeah,
1: you... you know, maybe I can do this on my computer. So <laughs> I had no idea. But after I talked with Heather, there's a recording studio here, and, you know, she had run this audiobook company, so she, she just explained to me how it went, what mm-hmm. you did.
0: How hard is it to get a contract? Because I know a lot of people when they're doing book deals or signing book deals – I don't think a lot of, especially in the craft world, well, until you came along, people were not thinking about, oh... Then there's also the audio possibilities here. I think a lot. And I don't think a lot of people were thinking that their book would be read aloud, so people could listen to it while they're crafting. Which, of course, I think is a fantastic idea because that's what keeps me in. You know, the podcasting business here is that people listen to my show. A lot of times, I hear from people who say, "You know, I really like to listen to people's stories while I'm crafting." You know, or while I'm commuting to work or whatever. But people like to multitask, and especially if they can keep their hands free so they can be crafting, you know, and not have to turn pages, they really like right. that. So is this difficult when you're trying to get contracts?
1: Well, it took a while. It takes a couple of months. It it did, actually, then. Now it's better because I'm known and I have publishers that I work with and contacts in, in the publishing industry. But yeah, in the beginning, I was just calling blind and trying to find the right person and uh people were were lovely, very gracious and and I'm sure I caught everyone off guard you know Gee, the audio rights for a stitch and bitch, you know <laughs> that's an odd idea <laughs> uh, nobody said that, but you know you get the right person and you just keep asking and the publishing world, these people are really obviously hugely busy, oh yeah. So you just have to kind of keep after them. You know, know, I wrote you a couple weeks ago. Have you had a chance to look into it kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so it took a while. But after you get the contacts and the right people and you get everything going, then it all goes very easily.
0: Well, and how does this work then? After you get the contract, you get the publisher to agree to to let you do this. What do you Uh do next?
1: Well, you decide on the narrator. There are lots of really good voices up here. This is a big theater area lots of actors and actresses. And so you think about who you want, what kind of voice you want, just like a producer with a movie or a director with a play, you mm-hmm. know, cast the piece. And then when you get the narrator lined up and the studio and everything, you you work with them. You have to get the pronunciation right, and this can be very time consuming. And then you work with the narrator on exactly what you want for the reading and then you go into the studio you have to plan on about double the amount of time for the book in other words if it's a four hour audio book you need eight hours in the studio and we usually break it up four hours and four hours Mm -hmm. and the narrator goes into a sound booth just like you see in the movies with people in the sound booth yeah little microphone and headphones and, and you and you just
0: go if there's a goof or something do they just stop and start the sentence over
1: yeah you just Keep going through it. The mistakes either I would catch or the narrator catches. You go back over it. You mark up the script. And then when the book has been recorded, the recording engineer uh, produces some CDs for me. I take the script and these CDs home. I mark up the script, give them back to him, correct all this. He does. He gives it back to me. We go over the book three or four times to try to get everything. And then finally, we're ready. We put in a little music. I work with Bruce Bogey, who's a wonderful musician and recording engineer, and so he writes these little tunes that go before and after.
0: Very cool. Yeah. Now, I'm curious uh, from the author's perspective, now in the case where you met Debbie Stoller and she, you know, asked to read her book, and you, it sounds like you were kind of hoping that she might want to be involved in the project. Does the author have a choice? The author really wants to read their book. I mean, is that something that they can do, or if you get the rights, do you have the right then to select the narrator?
1: Well, it's really up to me as the audiobook publisher. It's wonderful to have authors read books. Sometimes they're not in a place where there's a studio nearby, and sometimes they are. So it kind of depends. A a lot of times as I say, I have someone in mind who I would really want from right around here to read the book.
0: I see. Okay. And is this a deal with just, this is so new, I know absolutely nothing about how these things, how these audio components come to be, but is this a, a situation where the, you're dealing with the publisher, or does the author receive compensation as well for this, or is this something that's, the you know, depending on their contract, whether or not they retained audio rights?
1: I think it depends on the author's contract with the publisher some authors I work with directly because they did not sign the audio rights over to their publisher I
0: see okay so it really depends
1: mostly people do
0: well especially since this is something that's so new when will your year anniversary be well in March wow so we're coming up on that we are yeah but you sound like an old pro now now that you know all the ins and outs,
1: do you feel a like a pro? Learning curve. Do you feel like a pro now? <laughs> I'm
0: still learning. Is it just the five titles that are out? Sounds like you have some other things in the works.
1: Yes, we have. Well, we're about to release in a couple of weeks. We'll release No Idle Hands: The History of Knitting in America, and we have contract for Knitting Lessons by Leila Narji, as I mentioned, and uh, Knit Knit. By Sabrina Geschwantner.
0: a fabulous book. I just interviewed yeah. Sabrina recently. And she read that book too. Very cool.
1: We also will be producing this year knitting for peace, knitting America, another history of knitting in America, and knitting yarns and spinning tales. Oh, that'll be lovely.
0: really good. Yeah. yeah, I have that on my
1: shelf too. Yeah. So it's a, it's a really nice lineup of books, I
0: think. Well, that must be so exciting. So, is this your full time gig? Which is my
1: full-time thing <laughs> yeah well how cool
0: is that to just basically invent a, a profession for yourself because I mean no one was doing this before I have never heard of the craft niche being explored in, in such an interesting way I think this is really fantastic so I mean that's got to be pretty cool for you to look back and be like wow hasn't even been a year yet but look at me you know I mean that's really congratulations to you
1: Oh, thank you. It's really fun. I have to say, living in Maine, you almost have to invent your own job. Uh, <laughs> it's not a lot up here, unless you're a nurse or a teacher. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds like you're you're doing very well for yourself. I think a lot of times people have these great ideas, these grand ideas that they have, kind of bouncing around in their head for a while. But you've been able to, inside of a year, you've got five titles out. You're coming out with another, a sixth title in a couple weeks. This is pretty impressive. I'm very impressive well, at how fast you've been able to to do this
1: i've been really, really lucky with the people here with Heather Frederick being here with the recording studio, used to knowing the ropes with doing audio books. I also you know signed a contract with Interweave Press for distribution last summer. That was a wonderful thing, and I was very lucky that that happened but We also just signed contracts with Audible and iTunes, so the books will be downloadable
0: soon. Wow.
1: And a company called Playaway, it's a whole audiobook player with earphones, and you buy the whole thing. The book is in the player. Evidently, libraries are a very big purchaser of these Playaway units so that they don't have to cope with people losing or destroying separate CDs for uh, an audiobook. So they have these devices, and the person just checks out the
0: whole device <laughs> with the audio book wow and yeah. so it would have several books on one device then no just no just one, one. Yeah. oh interesting and, and
1: then, then you there's... have to worry
0: about the person destroying the whole device then <laughs> it, it opens a whole other ball of it's like was it would it be better to destroy a single cd or a piece of equipment <laughs> that play? i guess we'll leave that up to the librarians to uh, weigh that out
1: and the last contract we signed was with a company called overdrive and they upload libraries so that you can actually go online and download an audiobook from your library into your mp3 player or iPod okay and they're digitalized in such a way that you can't copy them but you just get to to take them out like you check out a book
0: oh okay so you just have it for a limited time it exists
1: right. isn't, isn't that amazing very
0: interesting. Geez, yeah. the world of audio books is so much deeper than I ever imagined, I do have to say. <laughs> well, it's wonderful to see that there's so many opportunities. And I think with new media, it really is awesome to see how you can really take the book. And nothing's going to replace. I mean, I'm still going to want to have Melanie's book on my shelf so I can pick it up and or Sabrina's book where I can page through and read these things. But any of us who are multitasking, I don't know about you, but when I sit down to knit, I'm rarely just knitting you know yeah. to just be able to listen to some stories because it's hard to turn the pages when you're clicking the pointy sticks. So. Right. It's
1: it's very rewarding. It really is. It's just a great pleasure and an, and an honor really to be able to bring this material to people in an in audio form. I'm really delighted to be able to do it.
0: Well, I think it's fantastic, and I'm curious about whether or not you're going to branch out. Will you be doing books beyond the topic of knitting? Are, are you thinking about maybe crochet books or quilting or anything like that?
1: People always want me
0: to do other things. But then you might have <laughs> really? to rename your company because you're called Knitting Out Loud. Right. I don't know. But it sounds like for right now you're content with the abundant titles in the
1: knitting I am. realm. I feel like I need to really get this under my belt before I even think about Crochet
0: your quilt. Well, and it sounds like your real love is with knitting. That's your primary thing. Do you do other crafts?
1: I don't, actually. I don't really like to sew, and uh, knitting is kind of it. I I don't know why. There's something really special about knitting. I have to say I love to, to crochet onto the edges of my knitted things. I think that's a really fun thing to do.
0: So it sounds like you may be persuaded, maybe down the road, perhaps.
1: I I don't know. (laughs) As I say, I I need to feel like I've really got a a total full grasp of knitting, I think, before I branch
0: out. Yeah, well, it sounds like with all the titles that I've seen in recent years, you're going to have plenty to record
1: (laughs) before you run out.
0: You'll never run out of knitting titles, and you'll never run out of knitters who are going to be interested because I think the knitting world continues to grow when you have... Ravelry and all these places where you can see knitters gathering online and you're like wow there's a lot of us out there.
1: It's amazing. Now will we ever hear your voice on one of these CDs? Well actually I would love to try it. I really loved doing the storytelling for the children and it might be fun to do some short book. I'm not sure. We'll see.
0: Yeah but it sounds like while you're willing to do that that wasn't your primary intention. Your primary intention was just to find a way to get these books in audio format. Absolutely. Well, I think it's fantastic, and I'm really pleased that you're going to allow me to play some clips. Tell us where they can buy these audio books.
1: Well, you can buy them on our website, which is, of course, knittingoutloud.com, and we have PayPal, but there's an order form there. You can send in a check or whatever. But they're also available on Amazon, and they are available through Interweave on the Interweave website and they also have little audio clips on their website. They should be available in most yarn shops, and we have a book distributor, and I know I'm getting a lot of orders through them, so you can trot to your local bookstore, too, and, and ask them to get the audiobook. Excellent. Or you can go to your library and say, please order these. Yeah. So
0: it sounds like pretty much anywhere books are normally sold or borrowed. <laughs> right, and if
1: they're not yeah. there, you know, just ask them. I felt as though, you know, when I was Talking with Debbie Stoller and meeting her it was really kind of like meeting, you know, the Mick Jagger of knitting. <laughs> I, was, I think I was a little intimidated, uh, but she is an absolute sweetheart, and it was, it was really fun to work with her.
3: Knitting Out Loud presents Debbie Stoller, reading from Stitch and Bitch, The Knitter's Handbook. Take Back the Knit, Why Young Women Are Taking Up Knitting Once More. My Crafty Family My grandmother sits straight-backed in the living room chair, her feet planted firmly on the floor in front of her. As always, her hands are in motion, constantly in motion, as her knitting needles go back and forth, yarn feeding through her hands from a ball that unwinds slowly at her side. My grandmother's hands are old, and so smooth they seem to have had the fingerprints worn off of them. Her sister, my great-aunt Jo, sits beside her, tatting lace onto the edge of a handkerchief. My mother and Aunt Hetty work on their own embroidery projects, and along with the other aunts and uncles who are visiting, all of the adults are engaged in a lively conversation punctuated by rounds of hearty laughter. Too young to join in the grown-up's discussion, I sit on a small stool, quietly eating cake. After all, this is a birthday party. My mother met my dad and moved to America when she was 24, but for most of my childhood, we spent our summers back in Holland with her relatives. Between my grandmother and her eight sisters and my mom and her two sisters, there were always aunts and great-aunts around. Women filled every room, and whenever the relatives were gathered together, the women's hands were always working. With very few exceptions and with barely any attention paid to what was going on below their elbows, the women would be busy knitting or sewing, darning or tatting. It didn't so much matter what they were making—after all, what purposes served by hand-tatted lace sewn onto the edge of a handkerchief—as long as their hands remained in motion. For, as my grandmother used to say, idle hands are the devil's workshop." but there was something else behind all this activity as well. The handwork of my grandmother and great-aunts seemed to provide comfort and serenity. Seated at these family gatherings, their purposeful motions gave them a focused air of self-containment and earthy solidity. They were, after all, women who had learned their crafts as children and who had practiced these skills throughout their lives, before and after the birth of children, the loss of husbands, and through two world wars. Their knitting was as regular and rhythmic as their breathing, as familiar as the feel of their own skin, and just as much a part of them. My grandmother and her sisters were too humble to consider their work expressions of their creativity. They were craftspeople, plain and simple, who were capable of taking on the most complex of knitting projects, but who, for the most part, were content to keep themselves working on functional items whose patterns they knew by heart. From the time she first learned to knit, at age six, My grandmother was responsible for knitting socks to cover each of the 30 feet in her family. In the evenings, the boys were free to do anything they liked, she once told me with a lingering tinge of resentment, but all the girls had to sit and knit. Later on in her life, she made more extravagant items, including a fanciful knit suit and a beautiful dusty rose-colored nubby yarn, which my aunt still talks about to this day, but my grandmother always returned to her sock knitting. Even in her 90s, When her eyesight began to fail, she could still turn out perfect pairs of socks, the memory of their creation so well worn into her hands that she could knit them practically by feel alone. My grandmother's hand-knit socks are still the only thing my father ever wears on his feet. In my grandmother's time, knitting was not just a way to keep one's hands busy. It was also a way to save money. When my mother was small, it was standard practice to buy yarn and knit a sweater for a child, then a year or so later, unravel and re-knit it with a bit more yarn when the child had outgrown the original. Then there was the time, during the Second World War, that my grandmother had to unravel an old cotton bedspread, which her own mother had knit, to make underwear for her children. My mother still remembers sitting on uncomfortably hard wooden school benches, the bumpy side of the knit underwear leaving marks on her behind. In America, my mother carried on the frugal family tradition and made almost all of the clothes my brother and I wore. Those girls are handy with a needle and thread, my grandmother would often say, proudly, about her daughters. The sight of my mother's heavy gray sewing machine set up at the end of the dining table was so familiar to me that it almost seemed like another sibling, and when she wasn't sewing, she was knitting or embroidering. Walking through a department store, my mother would often finger the material on an item of clothing— then check the price tag and sniff. I can make that myself. A few weeks later, I'd be presented with a hand-knit sweater or dress that was virtually indistinguishable from the store-bought variety. Spending summers at Aunt Hetty's house in Holland as a child, I was in awe of the beautiful tapestries she had made using a combination of applique and embroidery. And, of course, she also sewed and knit. And then there was her homemade jewelry, long strands of pink and purple glass beads that hung around her neck and dangled from her ears. On rainy days when Aunt Hetty would set me up at her kitchen table with scraps of yarn, colorful beads, and embroidery floss left over from her projects, I'd feel like Hansel and Gretel arriving at a house made of candy. Only, in my fairy tale, there was no witch and nothing to fear.
1: Making American Knits, again, Melanie Fallick, so widely published, so famous in the knitting world, and I, you know, this kind of little nobody coming along, oh, I make, I'm, I'm making an book. And, and she was just so lovely and gracious and so extraordinarily helpful. It was, again, just a wonderful thing to work with her on American Knits.
2: Knitting Out Loud presents American Knits, written by Melanie Falick. Read by Christine Marshall. Introduction I learned to knit as a very young child, from my mother and my grandmother, then learned to purl from my aunt. I vividly recall the long, thin, pointy metal needles I practiced on, the yellow yarn, and the misshapen fabric I produced. In my mind, I can see myself sitting cross-legged on the floor in my aunt's study while she worked at her desk, carefully counting my stitches, which varied in number almost every row. I have no recollection of creating anything in particular, of even finishing a project during my childhood, though my memories of knitting are happy ones. As an adult, I had several false starts as a knitter, but once I was knitting consistently, the idea for this book came to me quickly. I worked in publishing, so I was, perhaps even more than most knitters, interested in seeing the knitting books available. I searched the shelves at nearly every bookstore and library I visited, and noticed that the most beautiful books came from England, and that the subtle message communicated through the lack of lavishly illustrated American publications was that British designers were more talented than their American counterparts, that they were more worthy of this glorious treatment. Even though Kay Facet, one of the most celebrated and talented knitters of all time and the author of the most successful illustrated books about knitting, is American, he has resided in England since the mid-1960s, and his early books were published in the United Kingdom prior to becoming available in the United States. Like most knitters... Wherever I traveled, I would look not only for bookstores, but also yarn shops or any other fiber-related destinations I could identify, including farms, festivals, and museums. What I found were some of the most fascinating people I had ever met, many of whom worked quietly and with limited recognition in their little corner of the world. I decided to write this book because I wanted to celebrate knitting in this country, its richness and its diversity. I worked on American Knits almost exclusively for one and a half years. In the beginning, I met with, talked on the phone with, and corresponded with hundreds of people, including yarn company owners, designers, artisans who create one-of-a-kind garments, gallery owners, farmers, and a profusion of non-professional knitters who are impassioned by the medium as well as by fiber in general. Slowly, I began compiling the list of people and places I wanted to feature it was important to me to link together the many different elements that feed into the knitting process, from the breeding of the animals that provide the fiber, to the transformation of the fiber into yarn, to the actual knit and purl stitches that yield the infinite possibilities that have been fascinating knitters for centuries. I also wanted to illustrate that knitting is not just a method of garment making— but also can be used to make powerful, wearable, as well as non wearable, visual statements. I tried to give the designers who created projects for American Knits a great amount of freedom so that their designs would be representative of who they are rather than who I am. The making of American Knits became, for me, an important personal journey. By opening their homes, studios, and farms to me, the people featured in this book not only shared an important part of themselves, they gave me invaluable glimpses of, and confidence in, my own potential in many different aspects of my life. For that, I am truly grateful. I have spent a lot of time thinking about why we knit and talking to others about it. I have come to believe that knitting speaks to both an innate pleasure in making and to a natural instinct to create something that is pleasing to the eye. Even though our world is becoming increasingly reliant on the work of machines rather than human hands, and speed and economic gain often seem to be valued over all else, the instinct to use our hands to create, however time-consuming that process may be, remains with us. When knitters gather together, whether for a few hours each week or for a week-long retreat, they are making time for an activity they love as well as nurturing social bonds. Many a knitter I spoke to compared her knitting group meetings to the quilting bees of yesteryear, to support groups, to lifelines. The vast majority of knitters are women. Indeed, knitting is woman's work and has been for a long time. While it is true that men played an important role in the history of knitting, the practice lost favor among most of them And as a result, its prestige, when it ceased to hold potential for significant financial gain. Interestingly, just the fact that knitting is women's work has brought forth a recent wave of feminism within the knitting community. While the trend during much of the late 20th century was for women to turn away from many of the traditional female roles to which they were once confined, women are now choosing to celebrate with pride. What they have always done, stitching the stories and emotions of their lives into textiles. And they are celebrating and enjoying one another, sometimes as never before. The image of knitting within the general non knitting public is strangely limited. Somehow, the overriding and misguided message is that if knitters had something better to do, they would. After meeting with knitters all over this country, I can attest that they are all ages and come from all walks of life. What they share is a common passion, one that invigorates them in good times and can even help to heal them in bad. What they create runs the gamut. Some call their work fashion, others craft, others art, and some simply regard their creations as labors of love. To me, what is most important to understand is that the potential of knitting is limitless. It is my sincere hope that all who hear this book, knitters and non-knitters alike, will feel inspired in their knitting and in their lives.
1: With knitting memories, you know, these really are more stories, and the woman who recorded them, Kimberly Dakin, is really an actress. And she just threw herself into creating a particular atmosphere around the reading of each story.
4: Knitting Out Loud presents Knitting Memories, Reflections on the Knitter's Life, edited by Leila Narji and read by Kimberly Dakin. Introduction From the time she was very, very small, just beginning to form words and steps, my daughter Ada has possessed the curious ability to recognize the hand-knit bits and garments strewn throughout our household. With no conscious cues from her knit-loving mother, she is, nevertheless, drawn to them. No more than drawn to them, fiercely determined to have these things near, around her, over her, under her head, as though their fibers and her own were made of the same stuff. The first such object of her infatuation was a variegated sweater made for her as a newborn. For over a year, she insisted on being stuffed into this sweater until it held her arms and belly as tightly as sausage casing. If ever I tried to dress Ada in another, she shrieked and flailed, then fell limp in a useless dead weight. I stopped trying. It was, is, a plush penguin wears it now, a beautiful sweater. Soft gradations of pink and lavender and pale green are topped with a lettuce-leaf collar, antique oval mother-of-pearl buttons punctuate the front, a bit of moss stitch peppers each border but what does a toddler know or see of such details? At night, as I tuck her in for sleep, she calls off her unvarying list of items she must have surrounding her, in addition to all the usual bedding. Pillow, a small rectangle topped with an angora and mohair splotch that was my first ever attempt at knitting. Pink blanket really a pink and yellow patchwork of flowers and trees and fanciful foliage ringed by a tasseled border, made by a doting auntie. Blue Blanket, the work of another auntie, patterned with alternating stripes of cream and midnight and light blue. When all had been gathered and arranged, Ada appears as a plumped and wildly uncomfortable miniature Maharani, crookedly half-leaning against a tall stack of pillows sweating beneath one down comforter and a slathering of wool blankets. Under penalty of gruesome toddler meltdown, everything has been painstakingly ordered with no wrinkles, no gaps, tassels just so. Two years old at this writing, Ada is now tall enough and dexterous enough to open and rummage through dressers' cabinets' enmoise. She has managed to unearth a little vest, still too large for her, Knitted by some Italian friends. Among the stacks of sweaters and shirts and onesies and pants and skirts and tights, Ada espied this garment, yanked it out, and has begun using it to tuck a favorite doll into a miniature stroller. It is a somewhat unremarkable piece, comprising two white and magenta striped panels knitted flat and stitched together. I try to fathom what about this vest has caught Ada's attention. Does she remember our Italian friends from the time we spent in their company almost a year ago? Remember them measuring and plotting and finally finishing this vest with droplets of crochet? I doubt it, and yet, who knows? It seems more likely, though, as was the case with her beloved pink sweater, that she somehow recognizes this garment as something handmade and made with her in mind. In the evening, Sitting up on the couch in front of a favorite movie and munching a snack, Ada suddenly demands that her little blanket, as she's taken to calling this simple rectangle she has yet to wear, be brought to her. I retrieve it from the stroller to tuck around her legs. As she alternately watches and munches, Ada takes a second or two to re-tuck the vest just so, to smooth its edges, stroke its contours. Admittedly, there are a lot of knitted things in our house. With the enthusiastic input of dozens of knitters around the country, I wrote a book about knitting shortly before I became pregnant with Ada. And when she was born, knitted gifts abounded. This may play some small part in her ability to recognize knitting, but there are many other kinds of handmade things in our house. Paintings by Ada's father and numerous friends hang on the walls. Curious little assemblages, top tables, and are tucked into shelves. Ada's ancestors built some of our furniture. I've sewn the curtains. What is it about the knitted things so particularly that calls to her? Hazarding a simpleton's guess, I'd say that it has to do with the fact that they are eminently tactile and that she is allowed to touch these things, unlike the paintings, and to wear them, unlike the curtains. Some of them have bits she can twiddle and twist, and she can stick her fingers between the stitches. They are soft, fuzzy, bright. But as I've indicated, many of them have also been knitted just for her, by people who know and love her. Perhaps a whiff of this cherishing perfumes the fabric. This notion is whimsical, as notions go, and yet it does not strike me as outlandish, knitting somehow, powerfully has permeated Ada's consciousness. At the age of two, she lives already with a strong, almost Proustian sense of it. Maybe it's just genetic.
1: Melissa Hughes does this just magnificent job. Again, uh, so many things about this company have come together astoundingly well. She, in fact, lived in England for years and years and years. And so she knew the pronunciation of all the English place names and read both History of Hand Knitting and Art of Fair Isle Knitting beautifully. She's a magnificent reader and actress. And she lives right here in Stockton Springs. love the sound of her voice. I was so thrilled to have her read those two.
2: Knitting Out Loud presents... The Art of Fair Isle Knitting, Abridged, written by Ann Fetelson, 1996, read by Melissa Hughes.
5: Introduction. I think of Fair Isle knitting as art because it is inventive and beautiful, a rich accumulation of the ideas and experience of countless knitters. But as far as almost all Shetlanders are concerned, Fair Isle knitting has been a livelihood and a traditional craft, not an art. A woman whose household needed the income from her knitting had no leisure time. Even if she found a spare moment, it was considered a sin to be idle. There simply was no time for making revisions in her knitting or experimenting with refinements. She didn't think of breaking new ground or of scaling aesthetic heights. One knitter I met who combines multiple elaborate patterns in resonantly orchestrated shadings said to me, I take no pride in my work. I was surprised. I found her work impressive, and I thought she had a right to be proud of it. Rather, the superior versatile skills of the typical knitter are taken for granted, shrugged off. The fact that most of the Shetland women I came to know did not want their names used in this book speaks of the absence of a concept of art. An individual stamp is just not important. But there was pride in the voice of a 94 year old knitter when she told me forthrightly I was always ambitious about my knitting. As a young woman, she had spun twenty subtly different shades of undyed wool for a lace shawl that was selected for presentation to Princess Mary on her marriage to Lord Lascelles in 1922. She also said, My first sight of Fair Isle knitting in the 1920s, I thought I had never seen anything so lovely in my life. For her, I am sure there was art in knitting. There was an inner challenge to see patterns and colors anew, to excel. She was once requested to knit a forty five inch sweater in three days, dared to do it, and succeeded. Others, too, must have felt a spark of artistic excitement when they saw Fair Isle patterns and tried them for the very first time. Despite the conservatism that for most Shetland knitters today dictates staying within the bounds of tradition, there is a tacit understanding that originality is inherent in a good Fair Isle sweater. Some knitters are known for their ways of blending colors and for their preferred patterns. The garments that were presented to royalty in the nineteenth century and the winning Fair Isle entries in nationwide competitions in the 1920s must be distinguished as art, as supremely accomplished masterpieces. They were not the only ones many another sweater, sold cheaply and forgotten, has heard the whisper of inspiration. While some of the knitting churned out day after day, week after week, year after year, was certainly routine, what is truly remarkable about Shetland is that this small community of isolated, modest people dressed royalty and fashion-conscious people for decades, and that its style of knitting, honed in privation, became common all over the world. The beauty of Fair Isle knitting is continuing inspiration for hand knitters and fashion designers. Today's Shetland Knitter runs a small business producing highly perfected garments that draw from any and all aspects of the past, or knits for that business either sweaters by machine or small items, hats, gloves, by hand, or is an expert with wide knowledge who experiments with great artistry in the territory already staked out, and has a steady supply of private orders, or intends, one way or another, to sell her work. For the Shetland knitter, the connection between knitting and money has never been lost. For the American or British knitter, who devotes her leisure time to making a gift or a special garment for herself, This is the most dissonant aspect of Fair Isle Knitting's history, the hardest part to comprehend. Shetland women knitted because they had to. Today, most of us knit because we love to. This book is my attempt to pay homage to the hard-working Shetland knitter of the past and the present. I have listened to the recollections of knitters in their forties, fifties, sixties, seventies, eighties, and nineties, and looked at their work. I have read old Shetland newspapers and knitwear catalogs and examined the collections of knitwear, photographs, and ephemera in museums in Shetland, Edinburgh, and London. I have used reproductions from these sources to help tell the story of Fair Isle knitting, its evolution from the first small items sold to fishermen and tourists in the 19th century to the highly fashionable androgynous sweaters of the 1920s, to the large, starry Norwegian patterns popular after World War II, to the hand- and machine-made yoked sweaters of the 1960s and 1970s. My aim is to relate the history of Fair Isle knitting in Shetland in a new way, one that considers the relationship of aesthetics to women's lives, fashion, market forces, and the natural environment.
2: Knitting Out Loud presents A History of Hand Knitting, Abridged, written by Richard Rutt, 1987, read by
0: Melissa Hughes.
5: Introduction. The first English records of the history of knitting lie in Edmund Howes's two famous stories, published in 1615, of the knit hose seen by William Ryder in the Mantua Merchant's House and the stockings made for Queen Elizabeth I by Mrs. Montague. Howes believed these were the first worsted stockings and silk stockings made in England. The next recorded reference to the history of knitting was an unacknowledged quotation from Howes. William Howell, a fellow of Magdalen College, Cambridge, Published in 1680 and 1685, two magnificent volumes on the history of Greek and Roman civilization entitled An Institution of General History, or The History of the World. In describing the encouragement of silk production under the Emperor Justinian at Byzantium in the 6th century, Howell digressed. Silk is now grown nigh as common as wool, and become the clothing of those in the kitchen as well as the court. Even that magnificent and expensive Prince Henry the Eighth wore ordinary cloth hose, except there came from Spain, by great chance, a pair of silk stockings. The theme did not attract other writers until the beginning of dictionary writing, two generations after Howell. Ephraim Chambers, who died in 1740, published in 1728 Cyclopaedia or Dictionary of Arts and Sciences, in two volumes. He drew on a French source— the Dictionnaire Universel du Commerce of Jacques Savary de Brulon, published in 1723. Under the heading Bonnetry, Savary de Brulon described the foundation in Paris in 1527 of a cap-knitter's guild under the patronage of Saint-Fiacre, guessing that Saint-Fiacre was chosen because he was a Scot and the Parisians thought that knitting came to them from Scotland. It was a bad guess in more ways than one. St. Fiacro was actually Irish, but Ephraim Chambers copied the story and the mistake goes on being repeated to this day. Chambers's reference to knitting was picked up and further developed by Malachy Postlethwaite, who produced in 1751 an English version of Savary de Boulogne's work and called it a Universal Dictionary of Trade and Commerce. This was not a translation but a book modeled on the French one in which references to English hand-knitting were entered under the various county names. The whole question of knitting history suddenly became of interest to all educated Englishmen in 1782 when controversy over the Rowley poems was rife. These poems were supposed to be the work of a 15th-century priest of Bristol named Thomas Rowley, discovered in the 1760s by Thomas Chatterton who was the son of a lay clerk at Bristol Cathedral and nephew of the sexton of the Church of St. Mary Redcliffe. Chatterton claimed to have found Rowley's poems in St. Mary's muniment room. Chatterton was a gifted poet in his own right. Wordsworth called him the Marvelous Boy, and in April 1770 he set off to seek fame and fortune in London. His quest was fruitless. He remained squalidly poor, and on 25 August was found dead at his lodging in Hoburn, having taken arsenic. He was seventeen years old. Chatterton's early death gave him romantic appeal. Some citizens of Bristol believed his story about the Rowley manuscripts, and the poems were published in 1778 and 1782. Immediately, some scholars suspected they were forged and denied their authenticity. The controversy raged for some time in pamphlets and in the columns of the Gentleman's Magazine. One of the central points of the argument was a reference to knitting in one of the poems. The masterpiece of the Rowley collection is a verse tragedy, Ella, which tells of a Saxon hero's struggles against the Danish horde threatening Bristol. In it are the lines As Eleanor by the green lascelles was sitting, as from the sun's heat she harried, she said, as her white hands, white hosen, were knitting, what pleasure it is to be married. The anti-Rollians claimed that this was anachronistic, because Howes's stories of William Ryder and Mrs. Montague showed that knitting was unknown in England before 1560. The Dean of Exeter retorted that Chambers's story of the Guild of St. Fiacre showed that knitting was older than 1560, for if the French had learned it from the Scots before 1527, the English must have known it at least half a century before that, which meant that knitting was known in England in the reign of Edward Fourth, 1461 to 1483, when Thomas Rowley was supposed to have lived. The controversy rumbled on till it was decisively settled by Walter William Skeet's 1871 edition of Chatterton's Works, which proved that Chatterton himself wrote all the poems in mock Middle English. This controversy explains why so many subsequent writers, including Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations, were anxious about whether or not the English could knit stockings in the reign of Edward IV.
0: We didn't talk about scripts, because obviously you're, in many cases you cannot read an entire book word for word and fit it all in. And How complicated is the process of when you take this book and, in book form and you're trying to make it audio, how much cutting do well, you do? Well,
1: I, I try to cut the material down to four CDs, which is between four and five hours of reading, simply because if, if it's a lot longer, it's going to be a lot more expensive to for the end user. You know, uh, If you look at the cost of a full-length book, uh, they're often $70, oh, and wow. I, I just really didn't want to be in that price range. It is hard to edit a book down. But I think that we've done a really good job. And when you hear them in their entirety, History of Hand Knitting and No Idle Hands, uh, that they read well. But it is very difficult. A lot of things, you know, some things are slightly out of date. Uh, The ending of No Idle Hands was a bit out of date. So I ended it earlier than the last chapter. I see. So you just Um, make adjustments that seem to make sense. Yeah, a lot of it is just common sense. In History of Hand Knitting, there are a lot of very elaborate descriptions of the items in museums that he talks about, and that I cut that sort of thing out to make it more of a narrative story. Mm-hmm. And as I say, I'm trying to make them affordable for average people.
0: And are they all the same price?
1: No, the books start at uh, $14.95, The Art of Fair Isle Knitting. That's a two-CD um, audio book. And then Debbie Stoller's Stitching Bitch was three CDs. And, and by the way, that does have a lot of knit one, pearl two in it because it's much more of a manual, but it's really a lot of fun the way she does it. And that one's nineteen uh, ninety five And then the four CDs are $29.95, and I'd like to not go higher than that. That seems to me sort of the reasonable upper limit.
0: Well, I think it's really great, and I, I, I'm interested to see now that you've opened... The door and gotten people thinking about craft books as audio books. I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens next, and if there'll be some audio felting books and you know audio um, origami books. I mean, who knows what's going <laughs> to? I mean, who knows what's going to happen now? You know, look what you've started. You know, in a couple of years, we'll have to see who else is is in this field because i think figure well, we have someone to do the knitting books. Perhaps there's a space for someone to do woodworking books or whatever the case may be. Absolutely. What I think is really cool, you had an idea, you sought out the people who could help you accomplish it, and I think this translates to people who are doing things that, I mean, they may have no desire to start producing audio books, but if, I mean, just from the, if you boil it down to just pure and simple, you had this idea and you went out and you, and you executed it and you're, you're, you know, you have success now with what you've done. Any advice for people that are in that maybe the idea phase where they're just kind of got the idea and they're not sure what to do now?
1: Well, I think the most important thing is to have good help and good advice. You absolutely have to, yeah, have that, the best people. And I don't know, I feel hardly, I almost feel like I'm not in a position to give advice because I feel like so many amazing things have happened for us around this company. Mm -hmm. You know, interweave approaching me. Gee, you know, can we distribute them? Why, yes, we'd be thrilled. You know, that was a thrilling moment when interweave asked to distribute. Yeah, because it kind of that
0: takes the burden off you then to figure out distribution. You know,
1: right? Yeah, and so, and and just you know, Heather, even in the very beginning, being willing to talk to me, it wouldn't have happened if Heather Frederick had said no. It just wouldn't have happened. I wouldn't have been able to do it so I had to have her as a consultant as my producer mm-hmm.
0: now are you producing um, the, are you producing the books now yourself
1: yes now I am yeah and it's, it's really a lot of
0: fun yeah well it sounds great I mean congratulations I again I mean I think this is great that in less than a year's time you've gone from idea phase to look at you now you know all these titles out yeah. you're rubbing elbows with well-known craft book artists or, or authors and just having a great time it sounds like
1: it is yeah it's a lot of fun I really love doing it. Was this
0: a tremendous financial risk initially? Because I think any time people are thinking, "Hmm, I think I'm going to invent a career for myself and then make a go of it," it really I mean gives people pause. Sometimes, I mean, was this something that was really a big risk? Absolutely. Yes,
1: it was.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a good sign that you can chuckle about it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, because I think we all know that as far as books go, craft books are not overly lucrative. I think... There's a definitely a false impression out there that if you get a book deal that you're just rolling in cash. And, you know, it's just there isn't a whole lot of money. It's just kind of like when people make things, they have handmade businesses. I mean, they do it and they love it and they have a great time, but it's not like you're getting a... A, a book deal that's worth several million. Right. No one's come out with any, we haven't had any like salacious celebrity stories that had crafts involved. Cause I, <laughs> something tells me there'd have to be some kind of, you know, Monica Lewinsky type level scandal at a high level. <laughs> and it turns out, the, Oh, by the way, the p- president knits, you know, um, or something. Yeah. it would be, um, had to be something on that level to really bring the dollars. <laughs> yeah. But um, so it sounds like though, you, you've, you took the risk and it sounds like you're, you're, you're glad you
1: did. I am very glad, yes. It was a big risk, and it is scary starting a business, but it's doing well, and I'm very, very happy that I did this. And I think one of the things that actually probably is so nice about the knitting community is that there aren't these you know gigantic sums of money to be made or had or floating around or anything. It's, it's more people doing things for the love of it because they like doing it, mm-hmm. uh, It makes a big difference,
0: I think. Oh, I think it makes a huge difference. And we'd all love to have larger sums of money (laughs) at times, you know. I mean, buy more yarn and so forth. But but yeah, I I think you're right. I mean, I think most of the people that are doing anything art and craft related are doing it. You have to love it because it's just not, there's not enough money to be doing it for the money. You know, I've never heard anybody say, I'm crafting for the money. I mean, mean, if you come across somebody like that, let me know, because I want to interview that person and find out what they're doing.
1: Turn them right over I mean,
0: that's something I've never heard, and I've interviewed a lot of people. But (laughs) I noticed that you have a call for Knitting Stories on your website. Absolutely.
1: Thank you so much for mentioning that.
0: Explain a little bit about that.
1: Well, a friend of mine mentioned that she had heard about this woman who knit a hat for her rooster, and I thought, oh, that is so funny. I would love to talk to this woman so i got her email and she sent me this photograph and the photograph was just unbelievable yeah i'm looking
0: at it right now it really is yeah. unbelievable
1: it's unbelievable and a little red tassel yeah it's a the little tassel chin you know and <laughs> and i thought oh i really want to put this on my website it's just the cutest thing so i got this idea because you know stories are what i love it's what i love about this literature knitting is so touching it brings these things out in people somehow i don't know funny and sad, everything. So I I asked uh, Martha Giancola if I could post it, and she wrote the story of how she came to knit this hat for her rooster, and we put it up, and then out of the blue, somebody sent me another story about knitting for children. This woman is a nurse, and she does some volunteer work for children. It's called Operation Smile. These children have terrible facial deformities, and these doctors travel around, to poor countries and perform these operations so these kids can have normal lives. And she knits for these children, and the photographs were just adorable. So that's my next story. And then people have been asking and writing in, and, and I would just love to hear from people if they have knitting stories, you know, funny, sad, strange, anything. It would be really fun. So I'm starting this uh, story webpage. page. Well, that, that's cool. so people
0: can write their story and then send a picture if they have something they to do with it. Yeah. That would well, I be think great. Hopefully there'll be some people at home that'll be inspired to to write something and send it to you. Uh, of course, that I have to lovely. say this this rooster story is going to be hard to top, especially with that photo.
1: <laughs> I know. I know. Well, I'm going to archive them. It won't go away. Yeah. I think it's
0: delightful. Well, I really appreciate all the time you've taken, and um, what we'll do is we'll try and see if we can get some people to come up with some knitting stories for you. So I think that'll be great. fun to see people submitting some stories to you. Well, I think this has been really wonderful, and I'm so happy for you that you've invented a career and you're successful that's really great you know your name's oh, out there and you. people are snatching up the audiobook so that's really great to hear
1: that's great and i really do appreciate you interviewing me jennifer yeah well so it's much. been
0: my pleasure i'm just excited to be able to give so much wonderful content in one single episode <laughs> have a great night and thanks again thank you jennifer you're welcome I have a good
1: night too okay
0: Bye-bye. bye Thanks to Kathy for that interview and for giving us a preview of some of the titles that she's recorded so far. So if you would like to get a copy of The History of Hand Knitting, I would like to encourage you to stop over at craftsanity.com, and this is The History of Hand Knitting by Richard Rutt, and it's read by Melissa Hughes. In order to get in the drawing, post a comment on the blog, uh, just suggest a title to Kathy. Just suggest a title of a book that she hasn't done yet, in her next book that's coming out, and I think she mentioned this... Uh, the next one is No Idle Hands, The Social History of American Knitting. That, that's by Anne McDonald, and that's going to be coming out if it's not already out. And uh, so those six titles are off limits. But if you have a favorite knitting title, please post the title of the book that you'd like to see made into an audiobook on CraftSanity.com under the write-up for podcast episode 71, and we will get you into that random drawing. The deadline will be Saturday, March 8th. Post your comment on the blog, and then please copy it into an email and send it to me, jennifer at craftsanity.com. Please include your snail mail address. We still have a little bit of time for a couple other things we have going here. On February 29th, that's the deadline for our several other things we're doing. The For the Love of Letters contest is still going on, so you have until February 29th to get your letter postmarked. You just have to write a letter basically about what what role letters have played in your life, and you send that to my P.O. box, you can find it on craftsanity.com. It'll be on the website. I'm giving away two copies of Samara O'Shea's book, For the Love of Letters, and what we're going to do is uh, pick two winners, and I'm going to scan in the winning letters and post those on the website so all of you can read those. I have received letters from people that were not for this contest that people have asked me not to share, and I assure you that I will not share Any personal mail that you send me, I will not just arbitrarily post it on the web. And what I will do, I've asked people to send their email address or put their email address on their letter. So before I post anything on the web, I will contact you to make sure that you're okay with that. Thanks to all of you who have shared part of your life with me and sent me letters. I appreciate that. And I am working on responding to those letters. So um, it's taking me longer than I expected, but I am still working on those. Uh, Also... February 29th is the deadline for the Pen Pal Exchange. And I have several people signed up, so this is going to be really fun. Basically, I'm just looking to pair people up so you can write to a fellow Craft Sanity listener. So you'll have at least that whole craft thing going as a common ground. If you're interested in this, please email your full name, your age, areas of interest, and, of course, your mailing address. And I'm going to attempt to match you up with a Pen Pal with similar interests. Please write Pen Pal Exchange in the subject line of your email. And I will uh, get you paired up with somebody, so I think that'll be fun. Um, I'm also doing, (laughs) you know, I know this is a little insane, doing all these things at once here, but I'm a multitasker, so that's what I do, is several things at once. And several of you are doing several things at once, too, because several of you are entering the contest and the Pen Pal Exchange and the Fabric Postcard Swap, so I'm realizing I'm not the only one that likes to have a hand in everything. Um, So for those of you who are interested, there's also a Fabric Postcard Swap that Uh, I'm organizing. This is the first swap I've ever organized, so, you know, be prepared. Um, There could be some bumps in the road here. However, um, so far things are going smoothly, and uh, the deadline for that, again, is February 29th. To enter this, all you have to do is send me an email, put fabric postcard swap in the subject line, and just tell me your address, and I'm going to match you up with a partner. In the case of the pen pal swap and the postcard swap, uh, early March is when I will do the assigning because the deadline is Friday, so it's quickly, you know, Saturday, I'm going to try to get to work on uh, getting everything organized. And for the postcard swap, the deadline to get your postcard in the mail will be March 31st. So you'll have about a whole month to get your postcard made. If you want to get a head start, you could make one now. The theme is spring, so anything you can think of under the sun that means spring to you is fair game. I have one last announcement. I'm going to be interviewing Anna Maria Horner on Friday. And we're doing kind of an interesting little giveaway here. She has a new fabric line that's coming out. It's very exciting. And she's going to be giving away some of her fabric. She's actually donating fabric to this giveaway. So it's going to be the first ever fabric giveaway that Craft Sanity has ever been a part of. So I'm very, very excited about this. I think it's fantastic because I love fabric and it makes me very happy to think that there are going to be four of you lucky Craft Sanity listeners who are going to get a chance to receive some fabric. So here's how it's going to work. We're going to take submissions, question submissions. And on Wednesday, I'm going to post the information about this contest. And from Wednesday until probably the early early part of Friday, we're talking Wednesday, February 27th. Through the 29th, I'm going to be accepting questions. Basically, you submit a question. If you have a question for Anna Maria Horner, you send it to me. And just put Anna question in the subject line, and I will get you into the drawing. So if you're interested and you have a question, and some of you asked me to interview Anna. So I know that her name has come up several times, and very excited to get a chance to interview her. So this is going to be fun. And then you have to listen to the show. To find out if you won. So that will be really fun. So you get to submit a question. I'll incorporate those into my my interview. And I will be drawing four names out of the, the hat. And we'll, you'll get your question answered by Anna. And you will also get a stack of her fabric. So I'm very, very excited about this. So think about those questions. And if you're listening between uh, Wednesday, February 27th. And the early part of Friday, the 29th. Feel free to send in your question. The deadline is going to be 10 a.m. Friday eastern time and i think that's it folks so i will see you back here next week with yet another episode of craft sanity you guys have a great week in the meantime craft sanity my friends it works for me
2: thanks for listening to the craft
0: sanity podcast with jennifer Ackerman haywood visit craftsanity.com for more information about today's guests and links to subscribing to the podcast want to support the show Follow the link to vote for craft sanity on podcast alley once a month you can also make a donation or buy goods at the craft
2: sanity store Have a suggestion for a future guest or have other feedback? Email Jennifer at CraftSanity.com. Thanks again for listening to Craft Sanity.